All right. How is everybody doing today? Well, all right. You can open up to uh, Judges chapter 4. We'll be continuing on through the book of Judges. A very familiar judge this week for, for those of you that don't possess a Y chromosome. For the other half of us, we'll learn. So uh, let's uh, go ahead and begin with the word. Was that confusing? The chromosome thing? It's men. Men have a Y chromosome. Because it's Deborah, and women know more about Deborah than men. You talk about it. Anyways, most gracious Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this time that we have together. Again, Lord, as always, it's a blessing to be here with my brothers and sisters to get into your word. Uh, to consider the weight and magnitude of it, to see what you do in us through it. And I pray, Lord, that our hearts would just be bare before you, that we would allow ourselves to be vulnerable before you so that you can just have your way, you know, so that you can put your finger on those things in our life that we need to hear about, that maybe we're blind to that you can bring about um, a glorious change that brings uh, that brings glory to your name, Lord. And so I thank you for it in your name. Amen. Amen. So last week was Ehud and Eglon, one of my favorite stories in the scripture, one of the most graphic stories that I've found in the, in the scripture. Just a wonderful thing of... Uh, of a, you know, fat, evil guy uh, getting killed, you know. But uh, a wonderful picture of, <laughs> a wonderful picture of the flesh and the cure for the flesh. The only thing that can deal with the flesh, and it's that sword of the spirit, right? And uh, I think Samuel's already asleep. He looks so peaceful. You're not? He looks just ever so comfortable. <laughs> so I'll uh, I'll try and I'll try and just be quiet up here. Um, <laughs> but this week, as you can see in your Bible, you can see the headline, and it says Deborah, right? And uh, this is a Bible story that no doubt is very familiar to you, to you ladies. Maybe less familiar to us men. It's one of those uh, stories that is often talked about in those secret ladies meetings. Um, that men aren't allowed to, but 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 I got the inside track on these meetings because I led a woman's group for six months, and it was a terrible idea. I mean, who who would put me in charge of a group of women? Um, but it it happened at my old church, and I led this group for for six months. And my thought going into it was, well, you, you know, you you talk about Ruth and Deborah. And, you know, uh, Mary and all these wonderful, virtuous women all the time, you know. So my first study, the very first thing I did with this women's group is we, uh, we did a study on Delilah. <laughs> and at the end of the study, I said, okay, next week we're going we're gonna to go over the book of Hosea. Um, and I'm sure you're all familiar, his, his wife was a prostitute. And so I thought that there were just great lessons that we can pull out of the book of Hosea. So, you know, we did Bathsheba, 
And, uh, and then it was going to be right into Hosea, and uh, a woman came up to me afterwards and said, uh, next week, start going over Proverbs 31. Um, and that's exactly what I did, because she was very intimidating. So, <laughs> so <laughs> but so for those six months leading a woman's group, uh, a lot changed. You know, I had to learn how to think like a woman. I had to learn how to read my Bible like a woman. I, uh, it was around that time that I began blow-drying my hair like a woman. You know, but, uh, but it was also during that time that I'd, I did discover Deborah in the Bible. And she's a wonderful woman. She's a great example to women. Uh, but before I lose you men, you know, like Samuel. But he's back. His eyes are open. He's got a smile on his face. Look at you. You look happy as could be beautiful little creature. Um, so before I lose you men, let me say that there's probably uh, more in this chapter that ought to be convicting and troubling for us as men. Um, so you're in for, you're in for a treat. Um, for those of you that are familiar with the story of Deborah, it's two chapters in, in scripture. The, the story is chapter four. The song of Deborah is chapter five. I really wanted to cover both of them uh, this week. And I got this this goal that is completely unrealistic for my preaching style, um, that we're going to cover a lot very quickly, and it just never happens. Uh, I saw in this chapter an opportunity to do somewhat of a, a hybrid study, so we're going to do uh, th this short little sermon thing, and well, way, way to diminish what I do up here, this little, yeah, whatever, um, but we're going to do a, a short little sermon, and then we're going to break up and we're going to uh, do a little small group. Um, activity at the end. We're going to break into prayer groups and talk about things. Oh, somebody is so happy for me to not be talking for a long period of time. But <laughs> I'm just kidding. God bless you. Um, but yeah, you can you can always be active. You can have an interpretive dance in the corner. Um, could work it into the message somehow. But uh, but so that's what we're going to do. We're going to do this kind of uh, hybrid study. The next week we're going to go ahead and, sh and, and tackle chapter 5. But we'll begin in the first three verses of chapter 4. And it says, After Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, a king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who served um, in Herosheth Hagoyim. That's what I'm going with. Um, because he had 900 iron chariots and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried out to the Lord for help. I love what David Guzik says here. Um, he says that the continual drift of Israel to disobedience makes us less and less confident of men, but more and more impressed by the mercy of God. And, and this, is the, this is the way we think. We put so much confidence in men. We, we put so much stock in certain men. And, and, and you hear Christians say things like, you, you know, if I were just, if I were going to Chuck's church, you know, or maybe if I were sitting under Corson, if I were down in Marietta at the Bible college, I'd be super spiritual, you know, to sit under these guys. And you know what? Maybe you would be. You know, maybe for a week. You know, maybe for a month. Maybe for a year you would be that super spiritual person. But if the strength of your Christianity is based 
upon a person or a personality, then it's bound to fall. It's not meant to last. It has to go beyond that. It has to be more than that. It has to be something that's deeper than that. And these are great men. Men like Ehud, you know? Men like Chuck, men like Corson, you know, men like our very own Sam Scotty. These are great men to, to sit under, to learn from. But it's been said that even the best of men are men at best. And the best of men can't be around forever. And when men like Ehud were there, they were drawing people towards the Lord. But as soon as they were gone, these people fell away from the Lord because they were trusting in that man to be there for them spiritually, to join them with the Lord relationally. That's not the way it's meant to be for us. You know, you talk to people and it's like, well, why don't you go to church anymore? You know, you, you see them, you run into them, and you begin a conversation with them. It's like, I used to always see you at church. What happened? And you hear excuses like, well, we moved. Or I broke up with my boyfriend that went there. Or things like, you know, I, uh, my, my, my mom isn't involved there. Or the pastor that I loved left there. And, and these are the excuses that we hear so often. And it's like, well, if that's your excuse, then you had a great religion. You believed in your mom. Or you believed in your pastor. Or you believed in your boyfriend. But their absence exposes our heart. And it was a heart that was dependent on a person for the strength of our faith. And it can never be that way. It has to be, it has to be better than that. It has to be stronger than that. It has to go deeper than that. And we see a person that represents that beginning in verse four, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of an L word was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. You know, Deborah, a woman greatly used by God, but a woman that's not without controversy. You know, whenever you see these types of characters in scripture, well, it's like, well, she's a woman. And it, can a woman not be greatly used by God? Well, you know, of course a woman could be greatly used by God, but, well, but what? Well, but she should, she should, she needs to submit. You know, she shouldn't be the leader of Israel. That's a man's job. You know, and this is, this is what we hear. Well, you know what? Maybe that's true. And I'm not going to argue with you if you hold that opinion. But, but I, but I think a much more valid question to ask, and maybe the question that we should write down is why was she made the leader in the first place? Why was Deborah the leader? You know, and here's a woman gifted in prophecy. That's what the scripture says of her. And she wasn't the first in the scripture. She's not going to be the last in scripture. You know, Miriam was a prophetess. You know, Anna and Philip's uh, daughters in the New Testament, they're all prophetesses. And, and here you have, and, and you know, some would say, well, well, Israel just came to her, and they recognized the authority of her, 
And they just said, you're, you're going to be our leader. And it was very natural. It was a very organic thing that happened there. And, and you see her first reaction to this in verse 6. She went to Barak, son of uh, Abinom from Kadesh in Nephtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go take with you 10,000 men of Nephtali and Zebulun and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots chariots and troops uh, to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Israel comes to her and they say, you're the leader. And what does she do? She goes to Barak and she says, you're the leader. You know, they come to her and they're like, "You're, you're the leader, lead us. And she says, well, I know, just the man for the job. And she goes right to him. You know, Barack, you're the man. You, you should be the leader. You, you know, and some would say, well, well, you, well, good. I'm glad Deborah did that. It, it, it shows us that, that she knew her place. You need to relax. You need to stop and just read the story. She's a prophet of God. She heard from God. And God said, Barack, he's the guy. Go talk to Barack. You're thinking, well, Michael, I have a good memory, and you still haven't answered your question. And your question was, why was she the leader in the first place? And you get your answer in verse 18. Or verse 8, I'm sorry. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. And there's the answer. Why was Deborah the leader? Because no man wanted to be. You know, it's interesting if you read this this verse in other translations, in verse 6, the wording is different. It actually says, you know the Lord has said to you. And it's a wonderful thing to write down. It's a different perspective on on the text as you try to interpret it. That here it is, a prophetess of God, and she hears from God. But are they the only ones that hear from God? She comes to Barak and she says, I know you've heard from God. And God has already said this to you. You need to go. You need to do this. You need to have faith. You need to step out. What are you waiting for? And there's your answer in verse 8. He wasn't waiting for God. <clears throat> He'd already heard from God. He was waiting for her. Because he had more faith in her. And it's a sad thing to consider. The state of men that hasn't changed very much in 4,000 years. He was a weak man of faith. But we're going to see he had a little faith. And that faith was used greatly by God. And that faith earned him a spot in Hebrews chapter 11. But in verse 9, it continues very well. Deborah said, I will go with you. But because the way you're going about this, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. And I love that because you read that and, and you think it's talking about Deborah. You know? That the glory of this war is going to fall to Deborah. She's the one saying it. She's the only woman in the story so far. So she's like, you know what? The way you're going about this, you're being a sissy. God's going to do the work. He's going to do it through a woman. And you're like, oh, Deborah, 
There you go. Go get that glory, Deborah. She's not talking about herself. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh, where he summoned Zebulun and Naphtali. 10,000 men followed him, and Deborah also went with him. He didn't even need to include that last part. Of course, Deborah went with him. If she didn't, he wouldn't have gone in the first place. But we're going to talk about these other nations next week when we consider chapter 5. Now, Heber the Canaanite, or Hever, however you want to pronounce it, the Hebrew translation on that one was a little bit dodgy for me to figure it out, had left the other Canaanites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree at, uh, this, this is going to be fun, Za'ananim, near Kadesh. And who are these people? Now you're going to find out in a little bit, so stay tuned. It's a fun little insertion. You know, like, where do these people come from? They have nothing to do with the story. When they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera gathered together his 900 iron chariots and all the men with him from uh, Har-Rosheth, Sam, sure, Hagoyim, to the Kishon River. Okay, so here you are. He's assembling his army, right? The warriors against the farmers. You can place your butts. Who do you think is going to win? You know, I mean, this guy's organized. In every way, he's got an advantage. He's got the technological advantage. He's got chariots. Israel, they have none. Right? He's got the territorial advantage. They're meeting to do battle on a plane. What works great on a plane surface? A chariot. You know, I mean, so he's got that advantage too. So in every way, he's got Israel down for the count here. But... As we talked about in the first study, as much as this is a book about human failures, it's also a book about God's faithfulness. And God's already said that they're going to be victorious. So all you have to do is watch it happen. And in verse 14, it begins. And Deborah said to Barak, go. This is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? And I love that. I wrote at the top of my Bible. Uh, in battle, God is more than with us. He is ahead of us. I think when we think of the struggles of life, it brings us so much comfort to think of the fact that God is with us. He'll never leave us or forsake us. It brings comfort to us. You know, we cling to that. Oh, God, you're there with me as I'm going through these trials, these tribulations. And he always will be. But it's a wonderful thing to consider that he's not just there with you. He's gone ahead of you. He knows exactly what's coming. He's taken out the greater enemy. And he's allowing the light and momentary things that come our way because they're going to bring about a great weight of glory. Yeah, he goes ahead of us. He sees what's coming at us. And so Barak went down uh, Mount Tabor followed by 10,000 men. As Barak advanced, um, the Lord routed Sisera, all of his chariots and army, by the sword, and Sisera abandoned his chariots and fled on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as uh, Herosheth Hagoyim. All the troops of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a man was left. And what a wonderful thing to see God win the victory when we're completely incapable of doing it in our own flesh. But God is faithful to his promises. And in verse 17, Sisera, however, 
fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Hebor, the Canite, uh, because there were friendly relations between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the clan of Hebor, the Canaanite. And Jael went out to meet uh, Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in, don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she put a covering over him. And here you have Sisera, and he's just this great military leader. And he's completely destroyed by a bunch of farmers. And he takes off, and he's running, and he comes to a tent of a woman. And, and it's, it's different than, than maybe we would think about it. 4,000 years ago in, in this you know, Mesopotamian region, women ran the tents. So uh, it was this thing where, where he came to a woman and she was doing her woman's work. And it's today what we would consider men's work because when we think of tents, we think of manly things, you know, and it's like, this is, this is, this is man land and we go camping and we do that type of work. And we set up the tent and we do the grilling unless you're me. And then you're just complaining about the dirt and looking at a rock to plug in your blow dryer, you know, but it's like a, but 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 back in back in these days, this was the woman's work. This was the woman's world, and the only person that was allowed into a woman's tent was her husband. So this was a very safe spot for for Cicero, and and, and that's probably the way that that he thought about it. He was like, this is the perfect place to hide out because no one would ever look inside of a woman's tent. The only person that was allowed in there was her husband. So in verse nineteen feeling very safe. He, he says, I'm thirsty. He says, please give me some water. And she opened a skin of milk and she gave him a drink and it covered him up. You know, and he said, stand in the doorway of the tent. And he told her, if someone comes by and asks you, is anyone here? Say no. And, um, and, and he's thirsty and he's been running from battle. You know, uh, instead of standing his ground and fighting to the death, he took off. And he ran quite a distance, and now he's very thirsty. And he's like, you know, give me some water. And she does it. And it's a weird thing to read. It's like, well, he asked for water, and she fetches him some milk. In the Hebrew here, it's, it's, not, it's not milk like we would consider milk, like 2%, you know, reduced fat milk that you get at Stater Brothers, which is just, like, delicious. I like 1%, to be honest with you, but, yeah, 2% is good. Um, but it's not that. It, this, is, this is, you know... 4,000 years ago, they didn't have refrigerators, so this is like curdled, chunky, cottage cheese type of milk, and it's warm. And so, and he's, he's tired, and he's thirsty, and he's been running all day, and he's like, you know, bring me some, some water. And she brings him warm, chunky milk. <laughs> and it's like, well, why would you do that? That's not going to satisfy the guy. But it was part of a calculated plan, because she didn't want to satisfy him. She wanted to make him sleepy. And you might remember this when you were a kid and you were complaining and your parents are like, just drink some warm milk and go to bed and leave me alone, you know, because that's good parenting, you know, and they're like, just, just take this and stop talking, you know, and, and so that's, that's what she does. So she gives him this warm milk to make him sleepy and she covers him up and makes him super cozy. And then in verse 21, but Jael Heber's wife picked up a tent peg and a hammer, and these are the tools that sh she was comfortable with because, after all, women ran the tents, and she was very familiar with these. And she went quietly to him, 
while he lay fast asleep, and he was exhausted. And she, she drove the peg through his temple into the ground. And then it tells you, just in case you were curious, he died. <laughs> if you didn't know this, you die from that. I mean, it's like... <laughs> I mean, so... <laughs> I mean, just an incredible... I, you you got to read that and you just go, what a woman. I mean, what a, what a brilliant, you know, bold, uh, brave woman. I mean, she, she just sneaks in there and here's the, the man, I mean, the greatest warrior of his time. And she gives him some milk and makes him super cozy, showing some great feminine hospitality. And just when he's nice and sleepy, she sneaks in, puts that tent peg over his temple, and just, boom, pins him to the ground. And, and it's incredible. And, and, but but you got to ask the question, well, where's, where's Barack? I mean, Barack is supposed to be the guy, right? He's, he's supposed to be taking care of this. But in verse 22... Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera. So, I mean, he's always at every corner behind the eight ball, this guy. And, he, and, and, and he's a perfect picture of so many men today. And he came by in pursuit of Sisera. And Jael's like, hey, you know, I, I know who you're looking for. Um, so he went in with her. And, and I'm sure he wasn't expecting to see this, but there lay Sisera with the tent bag through his temple. And then it tells you again, he was dead. You know, and this is, I mean, it's just such a surprising story. I'm sure Barack, he's still, you know, in hot pursuit, all that adrenaline pumping and flowing through his body. And he's like, I'm going to get this guy. I'm going to, and then he comes across this little, you know, sweet lady and she's standing there with her hammer and she's like, Hey, he's, you want to take a look in here? And, and there's Cicero and he's pinned to the ground and he's dead in case you didn't know. And on that day, God subdued Jabin, uh, the Canaanite king before the Israelites and the hand of the Israelites grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, the Canaanite king, until they destroyed him. Um, and you know, women don't don't get don't get disappointed. You know, don't be upset with me. We're going to talk more about Deborah uh, and uh, Jael uh, next week. But I wanted to talk specifically to the men. Uh, for a moment, and, and you know, you're here, ladies, you can always listen in, you know, I'm not going to monitor your thoughts. Um, but let me say this, if you go back to verse 8 and consider the substance of what's spoken there, you got to come to the conclusion that women are forced into positions that they should not have to be put in because of weak men. And I see this so often in the church today, that women are made the spiritual leaders of the house, not because they want to be, it's simply because men are unwilling to be. You know, women are the, are the ones that I see so often that are, you know, trying to, to, to wrangle the kids up, to, to take them all to church on Sunday. They're the ones that are uh, trying to teach them the Bible in the morning while they're brushing their teeth. And, and the men's just, or the man is just sitting on the couch, you know, and they're, they're just uh, thinking about themselves. And it's, it's a sad thing that's happened to the headship of the church today. The women are forced into the position because they have to occupy the position. You know, and at uh, at Bible College, every every Friday we'd have a guest speaker, 
Um, and they were usually from extension campuses, and they'd come out and they'd give us their little pitch. And, uh, you know, they were from all over the world. We had people come out from uh, from France, Spain, Australia, uh, Germany. It's, it's where I ended up going. The pitch was amazing. He sold me. I bought a used car from that guy, too. And uh, and but there were people that came out from Hawaii. I remember the guy from Hawaii. You, you, know, you know, what do you have to say to get people to go to Hawaii? You know, it's like, come to Hawaii. It's really nice. Every day. You know, and it's like, okay, I'll go. You know, I'll make that sacrifice for the Lord. And uh, one Friday, we had a guy by the name of Wes Bentley come out. And some of you might be familiar with his uh, ministry. He's a missionary in Sudan. Um, and he came out and he spoke for about 20 minutes and he completely destroyed my world. <laughs> and, uh, if you want a copy of the message, I still actually have it. Um, I listen to it every now and again when I need to be shamed. Um, part of his ministry is in developing this compound that protects women and children. Uh, because every night the LRA, the Lord's Resistance Army, would uh, sweep through the towns and they would uh, they would abduct the boys to train them for military and they would rape the women to impregnate them so that their babies could be drafted into the military and they kill the parents to destabilize the city uh, so there's no authority or oversight there and, and he told us the story of one of the girls in the compound now and she's 10 years old and when the LRA came to her village, uh, she was clinging to her mom, and she was crying because she knew what was probably coming, and and they handed her a machete, and they said, uh, you know, we want you to kill your parents, and she cried out, and she was like, you know, I can't do this, how can you ask me to do this, I won't do this, and they said, if you don't kill your mother and father, I'll kill them, I'll kill your little sister, I'll kill your two brothers, and then I'll kill you. And so she took the machete and she killed her own parents. And Wes was there with an American senator. And the American senator met this girl and he was talking to her and he asked her, if I could give you one thing in this life, what would it be? And you would think that this little girl would ask to have her parents back. You know, if I could just have my family back, that'd be the one thing that I would want. But she didn't. She actually, uh, she said, if I could have one thing, I would want forgiveness. I would want to know that I was forgiven for what I did to my family. And Wes held that little girl, and then he turned to us and asked us one question, which was simply this. Where were the men? Where were the men that were supposed to protect that little girl? Where were the men that were called as missionaries to that culture? What were the men doing rather than standing up and responding to God's calling. You know, I believe that God calls a million people every day. The fact is, we just 
a lot of times we're just like Barrick, you know, we're just not listening. We're choosing not to respond to him because we don't like what he's calling us to do because it's uncomfortable. You know, and this goes for men and it goes for women too. It's, it's a difficult thing to consider that if everybody responded to what God was calling them to do, no 10-year-old girl would have to go through something like that. Maybe there would be enough people called every day so that everybody would hear and know the gospel. But the fact remains is, is that because we don't respond to what God has already told us, a lot of this stuff happens in the world. It's a terrible thing to consider. But God doesn't just speak to the prophets and the prophetesses. And Deborah was right in what she said to Barak. God has already told this to you. You already know this. And that's what I wanted us to talk about with one another as we break into groups of maybe two or three is to consider with one another those things that we already know God has told us and to ask each other why we're not stepping into him. And it's not going to be, well, God has called me to Sudan. Maybe, I don't know, maybe it is for somebody. But I think for a lot of us, it's just very simply, God has put a burden on my heart for this person. And it's always before me, but I never respond to it. I don't know why. Maybe we're just like Barack and we're just afraid of what might happen if we step out in faith. Maybe it's a ministry. Maybe it's a person that we know. Whatever it is, let me end before we break up and before you have a moment to talk with somebody and pray with somebody. Let me end with what? what Wes said to us as he concluded his message that day. And, and if you don't like it, you can email him because I didn't say it, right? He said, when your life is yours, you choose where you go and what you do. When your life belongs to the Lord, he chooses for you. And God has spoken to your heart. I know he has. It's not up to you to run those things through a filter and say, well, I want to do this. and I don't want to do that. This is too big. This is too scary. I want to stay away from that. Now, your life is not your own. You've been bought at a price. The word says, therefore, glorify God with your bodies. Glorify God by just listening to God when he speaks to you. That's what Deborah did. And that's what Barack should have done. So I pray that they'd be receptive to listening to that voice. And you'd be open to sharing that with somebody else as we, as we talk for maybe just 10 minutes. But let me go ahead and, and uh, close with a word of prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time that we've had together. 
I pray, God, that that you'd forgive me because I know that there's been so many times when you've spoken to me and I pretended like I didn't hear you. My actions reflected that I didn't hear you. I was comfortable in not being obedient to you. It's a scary thing to run out into battle. And I pray that you'd set before each one of us the awareness that you're not merely with us, but that you go before us, you've prepared the path for us so that we'd have confidence in going out into battle, knowing that you've gone before us. Lord, I thank you. I praise you for this time that we've had together. Lord, it's, it's so wonderful to be with other people that just love you and want to glorify you and give their lives for your service. Thank you, Lord. In your name I pray. Amen.